And so it begins. Welcome to Dave's Psychology Lectures from Algoma University. I'm Dave Breibach. The following lecture is from uh, Psychology 4006. Uh, it's a new one for everybody out there. Uh, History of Psychology. Hope you enjoy it. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. I'll drink to that. I haven't done this in a while. All right, so today we're going to talk about um, the philosophical roots of psychology, where it comes from. Um, from, you know, and when I say philosophical, I'm talking about a long time ago philosophical. We're talking ancient Greeks, people like that. Um, not the... You know, nothing really horribly new. Okay, so I think it's probably the case that ever since people started thinking about, ever since we're people, people have been thinking about things, had had his thinking work. Right? In fact, I'm almost certain that's the case. And you got to also remember that psychology grew out of philosophy, but every other science goes out of philosophy too. Every single one comes from philosophy. Physics comes from philosophy. Chemistry comes from philosophy. Biology, all of them. Because it used to be back when people got educated, you either got educated by going and listening to a, some kind of philosopher guy, which is typically what you did in... Um, Ancient Greece, in Rome, if you had some money, you went and you hung out with somebody. And they taught you stuff. It wasn't really an organized secondary, post-secondary education system. Okay? That's the first thing. Um, or you went and you joined the church. That was the other one. So when universities, when universities start out, and we'll talk about this in a couple days, when universities start out, uh, the first thing they do is they have theology, Right? And they have philosophy. That's it. And then when other new stuff comes around, they go from there. So we've got to get a few terms out of the way if we're going to talk about um, philosophy. So one of them is epistemology. Epistemology is just theory of knowledge. Where does knowledge come from? Okay. So how do we know the truth? Well, there's a lot of ways you could know the truth. Um, from authority. Right? If somebody who knows seems to know what they're talking about tells you something, you take it as being true. Right? While it's a fallacy, the argument from authority, it isn't necessarily true that what I'm telling you is true. If you think I'm just being honest, well, at least I'm telling you you, you can then say, okay, well, what they've seen is the truth. Empiricism, you can trust your senses. Watch stuff happen. And go from there. Take careful notes. Rationalism. So this is using deductive reasoning to figure stuff out how the universe works. That's a pretty sensible way, it seems to me. 
Now this is going to be, this one's kind of weird. And this is, here we're getting, in, this is the, the sort of ancient Greek notions. That's these, these, by the way, I know this, these first three sounded pretty recent sounding. We still use those today. Those are actually things that the ancient Greeks thought. Aestheticism. Beautiful things are good. So if it looks nice, if it tastes good, if it smells nice, That's a source of truth. People still do this. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And there's something to be said for that I think we can say today. I mean, this may be a stretch is what what I'm going to say here. But if I see a theory that is elegant in that it's simple and it explains a whole lot of data, I like that. Right? If I see a curve, if I see a nice graph, you know, and I see this, like, I don't know, anxiety level. Right? And then I see performance. I see this pretty thing. I think, oh, yeah, that's nice. Even if, now that actually is true, by the way. It's called your results in law. You guys probably know that. That's a thing. For tasks you weren't an expert at, that's fine. It's perfect. It's beautiful. But if I had you look at this without any other knowledge, you saw that or you saw this, you'd probably like that one. Right? And there's something to be said for that. Nature has a whole lot of patterns that make a whole lot of sense. Like that there, there's a whole lot of, I guess we could say, beauty in nature. And that's okay. So long since I did this, I'm going to check if I'm recording. I am. Okay, good. So this is a little different, but Corey's right. People still do this, and I think we do it when we look at when we look at data. I mean, I'm always talking about how pretty somebody's data are, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. Pragmatism, on the other hand, doesn't work. You know, that's a pretty sensible way to look for the truth. Is it pragmatic? Does it work? And again, this is the ancient Greeks figuring this out. You've got to really give some credit to the ancient Greeks. Um, they were doing most of this stuff in first principles. They were just sitting there thinking, going, I wonder where, how we could think of what things are true. And then they just started thinking this stuff. Good on them. You know, then we got 5,000 years of civilization to figure that out. And that's just Western civilization, but psychology grows out of a Western thing. I mean, that's just something to, you have to understand. And skepticism. You don't believe something until you've seen it yourself. Many of these things, by the way, I think we would call hallmarks of science. I don't think we would call authority a hallmark of science. No, it shouldn't matter who you are if you did a good experiment. Uh, empiricism, yep. Rationalism, developing theory, sure. Aestheticism, yeah, maybe. Pragmatism, yeah, you think about Occam's razor, right? The idea that if something, the simpler theory is the best, the simplest theory is the best, that's something we've accepted for a very long time in science. And skepticism is really important in science. Now, there's skepticism and then there's being stupid. Like, okay, you, 
you know, at some point, you have to accept that things are true. You can sit around all day long and, I don't know, let's pick something. Uh, denying evolution. Let's go with that. Um, when all the biologists who have done all these experiments and collected all these data <coughs> think that's how it works, being skeptical of it gets to be silly. Then becomes a basic assumption. It's like being uh, skeptical of gravity. No one says, well, I realize that, it's, that every single time you drop your keys, they accelerate at 9.8 meters per second, but maybe they won't this time. And that's actually, that's actually uh, using inductive reasoning, that's true. But it always happens. At some point, you've got to say, okay, I get it. Yeah, that's probably true. It's like, uh, or, 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 or climate change, or I don't know. There's a lot of things like that you can pick and say, yeah, there are some people who are skeptical, but they aren't really being skeptical. They're just being pig-headed and denying evidence. There's, those are two different things. Those are two different things. The remote thing isn't working for which is annoying. All right. So some models, different models of science we can think about. Uh, Karl Popper always said that stuff had to be tested. You probably have learned, have you learned about Popper in 2127? Because I remember when I taught 2127, we talked about Popper's falsifiability criteria. Do you still talk about that? Or is that just me? I don't know. Is that just me? Okay, it's just me. But it's the idea that scientific questions are testable. So there's certain things that aren't scientific questions. Right? Uh, is there a God? It's not a scientific question. You can probably make it into one, but it's hard to make a scientific question when you say that there's, oh, but the thing is, the thing we're looking for doesn't, it, it makes up the laws. It actually doesn't have to follow them. Yeah, you're not going to be able to find proof. You know what I'm saying? Or one of my favorite non-scientific theories, still a theory, it's Freud, right? Why did you do that? Well, because you want to have sex with your mother and kill your father. No, I don't. Ah, you're repressing. My theory's correct. Wait, so you're saying both ways? So it's not tested. You can't, you can't test Freud. Freud's just he's a dirty old man from Vienna. And a cocaine bomb. Freud. I'm a big fan. Um, Thomas Kuhn said a community of scientists shares a paradigm. That's a way of looking at the world. Describing the accepted beliefs, values, and methods of science. And any changes, anomalies, lead to scientific revolutions. So in psychology, we perhaps talk about the cognitive revolution. Right? How everything's behaviorism, 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 not everything, but a lot of stuff is, especially over here in this, this part of the world. And then people come along and say, what about this HM guy? What about all the, what about, you know, Chomsky comes along and talks about language, and you say, and that changed everything. Pretty much those two things and some other stuff really changed everything about how we thought about psychology. Okay. 
I'm like, that. anomalies lead the revolution. Um, it's a very practical approach. Does this work? All right, good. And that's, you know, one of the ideas that, if you've taken, depending on the courses you've taken with me over the years, um, I've often said if, if a theory works and it produces more research, it's probably a pretty good theory. That's fruitful, right? So, for example, does it work? Then it's fine. So we can think about behaviorism. Yeah, worked pretty well. Works pretty well to a point. Eventually, it becomes like it can't do everything. Oh. And then we get a revolution. But all this stuff is testable. So these aren't mutually exclusive. These notions of science. You got to keep that in mind too. So there they are. They do look like a fun bunch of people. Um, here's Popper. That just reminds me of how in my timeline Lori is the first woman. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm a PhD advisor in this one. Still is a woman, but she's not my PhD advisor. So is my honors thesis advisor, wasn't it? But it was funny, it was pointed out to me one day. I mean, I never, it never occurred to me. I was just like, I wanted to work with somebody really good, so I worked with her. But the thing was that um, she pointed out to me one day, and this was in the, I guess, mid early 90s, and she said, how many other women are on this? How many people are on the full-time faculty at the downtown campus of U of T? I said, oh, about 60? She said, yeah, that's right. How many are women? I went, oh, it's just you, isn't it? <laughs> that's what I mean. And Sarah was not somebody who got really, uh, at least outwardly, upset about things like that. But it, when she pointed that out, it was like, holy crap, that's wrong. Now, they hired a whole lot of them since. Things have changed. But, yeah, it really struck me. Yeah, I mean, it, and I'm not the guy that yells about white men much, but look at the white men. Um, and that doesn't make their ideas bad, by the way. Or good, it just makes them ideas. And those are pretty reasonable ideas, I think, we've seen. Okay. So that's some, we got some stuff out of the way. A little bit of epistemology, a little bit of ideas of science. Let's start talking about some of these old guys. I want to talk about some old white men. I want to talk about Aristotle. That's the original old white man. What causes things to happen? Four causes, and I'll tell you what these all mean in a second. There's the efficient cause, the material cause, the formal cause, and the final cause. Those of you that know a little bit of uh, Darwinian sort of thinking, those of you that have heard me talk about Conrad Lorenz and heard me talk about Tinbergen, this is going to seem somewhat familiar. Okay. Okay. Should have put this in a different order. Should have put material first. What's the thing made of? 
Okay, so we'll use the chair as an example. Plastic, we'll ignore the metal. Plastic is the material cause. Final class needs to understand, what's it for? Sitting. Okay. Formal cause, what's its form? Well, it's got that shape to it. It's cherish. And the efficient cause, how did it come to be? Like, what made it happen? So, I guess somebody built it. Uh, a chair artisan. The example you use is a table, and you say a carpenter. But, I guess I could have used a table. I guess I figured it was made by a carpenter. Then I have to mention how it's factory, poorly paid. All right. So this, you call this teleology. This is the study of what causes stuff to happen. Teleological questions are questions about what causes stuff to happen. So this actually should remind you of like Kinbergen's four whys. If you've learned about that, you know, like um, the evolutionary reason, the functional reason, the developmental reason and the genetic reason. It's kind of like that. It's got that same sort of feel. So it's interesting to see that Kinbergen comes up with that in the 1950s, 40s. And this is um, thousands of years BC. So things have two teleologies, Aristotle said. The intrinsic teleology, this is their purpose that comes from nature. So let's, you could say, um, well, wood is, is, is well, to hold trees up. <laughs> hold up leaves. That's the formal cause of wood, the final cause, I'm sure. But things also have an extrinsic teleology. Those are things that come from the designer. Now, would Aristotle say that somebody designed the trees? It's hard to know. Um, But he would say somebody who's on a chair. Yeah. Somebody who's on a chair. Okay. So, one of the biggest things that people dealt with back then, and still deal with now, these philosophical people, is free will and determinism. And you'll hear this, and a lot of the Ancient Greek said this. Free will is necessary. Because it's the only way to adequately describe human experience. The only way to adequately explain human experience is with free will. Hmm. You choose to believe in determinism? Aha, did you not just express free will? 
See what I did there? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. By the way, I think this is There's no morality. How could there be morality if you have no free will? If you can't make choices, then nothing is right and nothing is wrong, and it's just a series of things that are connected and cause other things to happen. Nothing is right, nothing is wrong, things just are. That doesn't make sense. I know. It's stupid. But I mean, <laughs> but this is something that people argue against free will, right? This is the same kind of argument people make, um, and this isn't meant to say about religion at all. I think people know why Jesus is religion, but it's not meant to say about Jesus religion at all. People say you can't be moral without believing in God. And it's like, yeah, I think you can. That to me is a fallacy, right? It's like saying, yeah, sure you can. There's right and wrong. They just, for me, they don't come from a single book. That's all. They come from a lot of books. And it's like it. I just like it. Right? So it's the same kind of argument, though. You're right. And it is a silly argument. There's no doubt about that. And then people will say, oh, well, yeah, maybe you can talk about all that uh, free will. And you say there's no free will because if I have enough data, I can. Uh, we know that physically, the physical world has causes and effects. Well, I think everyone here accepts that there are causes and effects. You know, probably not. University, but I mean, and at some level we can say X causes Y, and maybe there's an X, Y, and a Z causing a A. I don't know why they shouldn't have gone with X there. But we also know about, you know, what about, and this is when people, um, people who don't actually understand these things, uh, mention sort of quantum physics. And they say, well, yeah, what about the uncertainty principle? Yeah, um, like Deepak Chopra says things like that. He just says nonsense, and people eat it up with a fork and a spoon. It's freaking nonsense. Now, you know about the uncertainty principle idea that if you have a really, something really, really small, so small like an electron, um, if you measure where it is, if you know where it is, you can't know how much it weighs. And if you know how much it weighs, you can't know where it is. So, well, really? Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, those are really small things, though, hey? We're much bigger than electrons. Okay, so, are there probably quantum effects in mind? Are there going to be cognition? Maybe. You might have some fun. Go to the Deepak Chopra quote generator. Perhaps we'll do that now. Because it's quite fun. So that's a good one. Everything projects onto a symphony of truth. That means absolutely nothing. But it, and he didn't say this, but it's exactly the kind of stuff you could say. Let's 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 make another. Orderliness is reborn in subjective marvel. See, it doesn't make any sense. 
But people buy his books. I don't know why, but they do. Let's, let's, let's do one. <laughs> Emotional intelligence inspires objective silence. That's awesome, because it means so little. Those words, okay, oh, that's good. That's a thing. I don't know if there's such a thing as emotional intelligence, but we, you know, we all inspires. Okay, objective silence. <laughs> and the nice thing is, look, he didn't say it, but you should follow him on Twitter. It's hilarious because scientists are constantly going after him, especially by uh, a physics professor named Brian Cox, who's from the UK, great uh, presenter for BBC, also a prophet. I forget what university he's at, but he's really great. You might have seen him before. Um, he's. Uh, was also in a synth pop band in the 80s and had a couple of hits, which is kind of great, right? Um, and he constantly, he makes fun of him. Like, he literally just, he trolls him just epically. It's wonderful. <laughs> it's really, really wonderful. All right, so let's go back to here. Slide. Okay, so, yeah, free will. The thing is, throughout history, deterministic accounts have been a lot more fruitful, a lot more effective than free will accounts. So if I can say that X causes Y, I can predict what's going to happen. Right? And the idea that one of the really important things with science is prediction and control. Um, and I've often, who cares about morality? I mean, morality. I mean, I, I mean, in science. I'm not talking about in your daily life. I think you should be a moral being. No such thing. Right? I don't see why it even matters. Determinism, as I said, allows us to make causal uh, explanations. And one of the things that gets me, I, I thought about this quite a bit, is that. So uh, we've got a cause. X is our cause, and then Y is our effect, right? Uh, I don't know. We could say men and alcohol consumed is X, and Y is a uh, number of words were called. It goes down. Well, that's a classic result. Uh, that shouldn't be anybody's honors thesis. More you drink, the less you remember. That's not. We've we'll known that for a long time. Aha, uh -huh. but what about, uh, let's put free will in. Oh, now we can't say anything. Now we can't say anything. Now we can't say the next cause is why. Because it might be free will. Uh-oh. Damn it. See? Having that free agent there wrecks psychology. And that's fine. If you think we shouldn't be studying anything and you can't make causal claims, go ahead. That's fine. Don't know what you're doing in the fourth year psychology class, but good times. Any questions or comments so far? You good? Okay, a couple other things. Mind-body problem, there's Descartes, good old Rene Descartes. That's the, one of the classic paintings people use. 
uh, there's the notion, what's the relationship there's a question people ask, between the mind and the body? And if you ask most people that are not us, who are not psychologists, they will say that the mind and the body are separate things. And they feel separate. My hand seems a lot different than my consciousness. It doesn't seem that way, does it? So you get the idea of monism versus dualism. Monism is that the mind is just another fist. It's just it's just another, it's like it's like your hand, except it's complicated. So it's one thing. Dualism is that there's mind and the body, separate things. Now, a question we can ask, and I think we should ask, is sort of neuroscientific explanations and all that. They're great, but can they explain psychological phenomena? What do you guys think? Do you think like looking at, let's say we have a very accurate MRI, FMRI, which they're getting better and better. And we can kind of watch people think. If I say these parts of the brain light up when people are doing the ash line, line paradigm, you know, with the three lines that one's shorter, but you say the middle one's, you know, you know that thing. Do I then, if, if I can say consistently that people's, that a certain part of your brain lights up <coughs> whenever you make that decision, you've been influenced by others. When you make that wrong decision. Is that more or less useful than me talking about authority in social psychology? I, 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 I don't think, personally, I don't think that one's better than the other necessarily. I think they're both useful. That said, and this is sometimes used as an argument. I think it's a false argument by people talking about dualism. Because just because I can talk about, say, some social psychological phenomenon and say that that's how cognition works or whatever, doesn't mean that that didn't happen in your brain, which is part of your body, made up of neurons and such. Right? So you hear a lot of people say that, that, you know, if, if, if we become all monists, if we're all modest, then we have no, uh, what happens to psychology? I, I don't think that's a, what do you mean? No. Most psychologists are probably modest anyway. Most of us don't believe that the mind and the body are separate things. Average Joe does that. Not to mention average Joanne. Being inclusive. There's, I've seen data on this, like about 90% of everyday people think the mind and body are separate. Then you, you actually ask experimental psychologists, and about 98% of them go, I've got a stupid question, Sarah. Do they ask them to explain? No, because no, you don't have to. You just say, are the mind and the body separate things? I do that when I've taught intro psych. On day one, I say, how many of you here think the mind and the body are separate? And again, it's 80, 90% of students with their hands up. Like, how many of you think that this term, you will realize that you're all wrong. But that's a pretty common result. I saw it years ago. I'd have been like an American psychologist. 
Okay, so now we got all that stuff out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about the Greeks. Yes, the golden age of Greece, we got guys like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and their little known friend Steve. I made that one up. That's not a real guy. Steve. So, Socrates, uh, who's sort of the original guy, uh, didn't like relativism very much. This is the idea that humans are sort of a standard and everything should be compared to humans. A modern sort of evolutionary psychology, and more and more psychologists getting this evolutionary angle to it, just sees us as really cool animals. Right? So that's kind of neat. Good on them. So he liked reason. Basically, he thought if I sit here and think long enough and reason things out, I can get to the truth. This is all about deduction. This follows from this, follows from this, follows from this. Okay? See, there's no experimentation back here. There's no. No invented experimentation. If you want to really affect the history of the world when you eventually build your time machine, go back to ancient Greece and introduce the idea of the scientific method in like 4000 BC. <laughs> We'd already be living on Mars. And that doesn't happen until the 1600s, 1700s, right? I like this idea of the idea that knowledge is virtue. Knowing things is good. And it's virtuous. It is moral to know things. I've often, I mean, people have said to me, um, because of my belief system, well, what, what, what do you believe in? What do you think are good? And I say two things, knowledge and love, everything else just follows from that. Those are just intrinsically good. Knowing stuff is better than not knowing it. And I think, I mean, uh, Aristotle probably would have said, he would probably have thrown in love, though, because it would have been too, uh, I don't know. Ignorance makes evil. So not knowing things is bad, Peter Griffin. That's where evil comes from, according to Aristotle. It comes from people who don't know things, and it comes from people not knowing things. Okay. I really like that. This is why we look up to these people. This is the this is where the modern idea of being educated comes from, is these people, right? Okay, Plato. He had a bit of a different look. Still went with the beard, though, which is good. <laughs> this is an actual photograph of Plato. Statue. He was a student of Socrates. Eventually sets up his own shop. What happens? It's kind of like he's the PhD advisor. But she's back then, there were really universities, etc. But he's a student of his, and he's like, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and hang out with some other uh, young people and tell them how I think the world works. So he sets up his own shop. As I say, it's not really a shop, it's like a place to hang out. They all kind of hang out in the street. This is pretty cool. He 
says that senses provide only an illusion, and that reason provides true knowledge. You can see his academic father influencing him there. The senses are lying to you, or are not necessarily completely reliable. He's already figured out that there is reality, but we are getting a version of it through our vision and hearing, etc. This is cool because, first of all, we know that's true. Like, for example, light doesn't have color to it, really. We just perceive different wavelengths of light as light is having different colors. There's a whole bunch of other light that we don't see. He didn't know that, right? He can't. There's no way he knew that, you know, birds saw ultraviolet light. He can't know that. He wouldn't know what ultraviolet light was. If you told him there was light you couldn't see, he'd probably look at you and say something. Well, first, if he said that, he'd, say, he'd look at you and say in ancient Greek, I don't speak English. But then, if you could explain it to him, he'd say, I, I don't think that's true. So, the theory of forms, this is the idea of, this is a very influential idea. We get meaning from forms that are timeless. So changes in objects make us perceive time. Changes in objects. I don't perceive time. I'm moving. So the forms around me are moving. So that's what makes it seem to, that's what makes me, allows me to perceive the passage of time. But I mean, it's clever if you don't know anything. We can always sit back and laugh at these people. But ha 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 ha, you silly, naive, ancient people. And most of our ancestors back then were just, they didn't know what was going on. They figured some stuff out, but they weren't thinking like this. These, you know, nobody was, and even if they were living in towns and villages, all hanging out together, they still think they weren't that kind of smart. Most of them. Maybe somebody here has a, maybe your relative has played out. In which case, well done. <laughs> most people were, were trying to figure out things like, okay, so to survive again tomorrow, <laughs> you know, no matter where you're from. So, he said it was a tripartite mind. So had three parts. An appetitive part, that's your appetites. That's your hunger, your thirst, your lust. You know, the fun parts of your, your mind. The, the affective part, and you probably know what that means, that's, that's your emotions. And then finally, your rational soul. That's your reason. A lot of times, by the way, when you read ancient philosophy, or even just not that ancient, you got to like Descartes now, the word soul often means mind. It doesn't necessarily mean your immortal soul. The problem is sometimes it does mean your immortal soul. So reading this stuff, it's great if you can read things in their original language, but none of us speak ancient Greek. So, Right? Anyone? No? So you have pain versus pleasure. You've got sensory function and perception. That's more over here, effective. And he said that mental illness might be associated with irrational drives or discord among the soul. Bits of the different parts of the soul. Or just ignorance. So they knew there was mental illness back then. Not everybody thought that everyone who this this not everybody thought like people did, you know, in the 1700s, that people that had, had, had psychological disorders were actually possessed by the devil. Thousands of years earlier, people realized that they were proper illnesses. 
This is interesting. Does this remind you of any psychological theory? Right. Yeah. Totally, right? Tripartite mind is like conflict causing disorder is void. Plato never mentioned anything about killing his father and sleeping with his mother. Records from the time, however, are sparse. Maybe he did say that. I don't think he did. I was kidding. I'm not, some of you guys I've never talked before realize I'm kidding. Um, he talked about different kinds of love, and he had a hierarchical kind of love. There's the most basic kind of love. Like, you start with like, mother and child, and you've got like erotic love. But the best form of love is the love for knowledge. I disagree with that, but um, it's not the least fun. It's the least fun. But it's, uh... So you start with erotic love. Yeah, your basic, that's your basic animal instincts. And then you get more rational as time goes on. So you get love for your uh, mother, mother and son, uh, mother and daughter, from the kid's point of view. And then you got love for a child, I think, is next. And then it's love for your fellow human beings. Right? You hear about platonic relationships? That expression? See? Oh, it's not sexual. We're beyond that. We're just friends. But see, to Plato, that was just loving your fellow humans is better than having sex with them. This is more rational. This is his notion, and I, I, I see the argument. Okay. And the top thing is, not even your fellow humans, just love knowing stuff. That's actually kind of cool. I kind of like it. But yeah, if you've ever turned to platonic relationship, that's where it comes from. Huh? All right. Aristotle comes next. So he's Plato's suit. Form thing was a little, little silly. How could form be independent of the thing that something's made of and the experience of it? And we talked about those four different kinds of causes. So he's like, how could that be? Now, you know, I kind of agree with him. I think he's right, actually, in some respects. So you can see how things are evolving over these different generations. So he says your soul does nutritive stuff. In other words, it, it controls your body. Ah, that's pretty cool. It does sensation, of course. Movement and reason. In other words, it's, it's, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty modern view of what the brain does. It's a very modern view of what the brain is. Or what, and what, 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 what cognition is. So, yeah, that's pretty cool, actually. Now, we talked about the difference between memory and recollection. Talked about recollection being something that was constructed. Memory more like looking at a painting or looking at a they didn't have video back then, so I don't know if this is Looking at a statue. 
Whereas recollection, see, recollection, don't listen, that's not the Greek, but that's where it comes from. You're putting things together. You're reconstructing it. That's a notion that we talk a lot about today. And he had an associationist account of learning, which is really cool. He, he said that if two things occur together more often, one will put you in mind of the other. Cool. Now, he also, the, the interesting thing is, he never said, he, in fact, philosophers, association philosophers for years always talked about that, and it goes back to Aristotle, and it's good stuff, and it's actually probably true. They never realized that the order of things came in mattered. And of course, we know today that thing before, thing after. Thing after not, doesn't necessarily put you in mind of thing before. It's before and after and after and before. That's a little harder. You can convince this of yourself. We can all say the alphabet forwards. Try saying the alphabet backwards. It's hard. You know, you can say Y, X, W. And at that point, that's where I go. You can see the YouTube's V, U, T, S, R, Q. I'm actually imagining you're freaking the alphabet right now and reading it off. <laughs> Whereas I can say it frontwards, easy. Because the order matters. But that's an associationist account of learning. That's pretty cool, because a lot of learning is just association. So uh, way to go. That's impressive, right? And he talked about imagination versus reality. We can imagine stuff that isn't real. characteristic of human cognition. We don't know if it's an important characteristic of any other species because they can't really tell us. But I can say if you imagine if the sky was green, you can immediately picture that. It's easy. You've never seen a green sky, but you could do it. Or a purple one, or just a rainbow sky. Let's go with all the colors. Just different stripes. It's easy. Imagine, you know, a nine-legged tiger. Done. Weird looking, but I can do it. But it's got a, the head of a housefly. Now you're all going to have nightmares. Um, <laughs> but hey, we can all do that. But there's no, that's not creating anything. But we can imagine things that aren't there. I've never been to, uh, I don't know, Italy. But I can imagine what it looks like. Right. Things like that. That's actually a pretty neat thing because, again, you've got to realize people are doing this. He's doing this from first principles. He's not doing this. Or not, you know, not quite first principles, but pretty close. So his friends called him Ari. I, I doubt it really, but I'm just. He talked about the importance of pleasure and pain and talked about what he called the golden mean. You need just enough pleasure and just a little bit of pain. Just the right average amount of pleasure, the right average amount of pain makes you a good moral person. Okay. That's, there's probably something you said for that, actually. Not bad. So, how do we achieve good, we humans? Well, he said there was four factors. Let's, let's 
reveal all of them. Um, individual differences. So some people are just better than other people. Some people learn better, some people learn worse. Some people have different, you have all have different experiences. So you say there's individual differences. There's habit. This is stuff that you have learned. This is stuff that you it isn't uh, stuff you think about anymore, it just happens. That's what a habit is, right? Social support. He talked about the importance of your friends, your family, your community. You understand, these people grew up in a democracy that had rule of law, they also had slavery, there were some bad things. It was a weird sort of democracy. Um, it didn't work that you voted for people. People were randomly selected to be part of like, the city council in like say ancient Athens. So all the citizens, so that's all the adults, probably just the adult men, I'm not sure, would go up and they'd grab out of the ball of a bag, they'd grab a, a stone. And the ones that got the black stones, oh, you're a member of Parliament. So for a year, that's what you do. But they had rule of law. We would recognize it today. There was freedom of speech. There was freedom of assembly. Maybe a little harsher than today, but with the lack of internet. Oh, and freedom of choice. So he's talking about free will. And all these guys talk about free will. Right? They never put this together. But of course, they weren't worrying about X causing Y. That's a scientific, that's a very modern notion. Questions about this stuff so far? Yeah, of course. Like, how do you think he figured out so much about the mind when he knew that the brain was, he thought that the brain was a radiator? Yeah, I mean, these things are kind of amazing, right? Because a lot of these guys think, that, like, right, because uh, Aristotle played all these guys, a lot of them thought that the brain was a radiator. It was, it was, it was leaking out, uh, that it was keeping your blood cool, that your, your, heart, your heart was where you're thinking about it. Which actually, again, you got to think about this. It makes sense. Until your heart stops, you don't behave much. Okay. And you can actually feel it pump. And when you're feeling more intense feelings, it pumps faster. Oh. It actually makes a lot of sense. It's, of course, laughably wrong, but it makes a lot of sense. I, don't, I think that they thought that the mind was separate from the body, and the soul was separate from the body that inhabited it. And because of that, they didn't worry about the physicality of the mind. Um, this wasn't even a concern for them. Your soul, which is, again, your kind of immortal soul, but it's also your mind, is in there, and it's... And, I mean, these guys even... Depending on... Um, to be honest with you, I can't remember which of them. At least one of Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, believed that animals, some animals had souls. So yeah, I think it didn't matter because they thought that the it was a non-issue because of the lack of uh, connection between the mind and the body. It's a good question. But yeah. Other questions? You want to ask yourself, who cares uh, about all this philosophy? Paul, Paul usually teaches this course called the Queen, and it's usually the first couple of weeks, and I hear people 
talking about literally going to learn about psychology. We're just talking about philosophy. Who cares? Um, that's my invitation of every other class except for you guys who seem very uh, intelligent. But I think it gives us idea where the ideas that ideas we have of history, right? And this isn't a course about the history of um, uh, I don't know wars as much as I'm trying to make it into it. Believe me, there's a lot of references to World War II in this class eventually, um, and World War One and the Franco-Prussian War, but. This is, of course, the history of ideas, right? And some very specific ideas. But those, those ideas, they come, the ideas we have today, they come from somewhere. We see this today. Look at all the stuff uh, we just talked about. Um, all the sort of Freudian notions people had. Right? That's, and that's just one example. The idea that there are di- different systems in your, your, your soul or your mind. We, we talk about that today. Some of you guys took memory with me a couple of years ago. If you, you could also take it in, in the winter, because I'm teaching that. And I know you guys know about this stuff. And even if you haven't, you know about episodic and semantic memory, things like that. These are not, as much as they seem new, a lot of times they aren't. Right? So some of these ideas are still talked about today. And notice that as we go along, that many of these ideas that we talk about today they are Alright, before we get on to talk about the, uh, the paper a little bit, does anybody have any questions or comments about this stuff? Alright. So, um, I've, I say... These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. Oh. I'll drink to that. <laughs>
thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures in Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, if you call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>